0: Good morning, morning. it's good to see you all today, Um, I applaud your choice in being here today. Uh, You could have easily chose to still be in bed right this moment, you could still be laying in bed, or you could have chose to take the dog on a long walk this morning, or if you're not a dog person, maybe take the cat on a long walk. And if you choose to do that, try to get that on video for me. I'd, I'd like to watch that. Or you could have chose to get ready for the big game today in uh, making sure that those KU clothes are clean and you've gone to the store and you got the chips and everything that you need for the game. But instead you chose to come and be here. And I applaud that choice. I'm glad you're here today. We want to welcome you that made a different choice and you're joining us online. So we're glad that you're with us as well. Today we're going to be talking about a subject that I believe is going to be of interest to all of us um, that are listening to this. This is toward the tail end of a long series we started at the beginning of the year and it's going all the way to Easter Sunday. so, So we're kind of getting in the home stretch now. But uh, the topic, and why I think it will be of interest to you, is, is because we're going to talk about you today. We're going to talk about you. So, where should I start? Um, Rusty Thomas. Let me say a few things about, no, <laughs> nah, let's not be quite that specific. Let's, let's talk about you collectively. You see what the title of today's message is, you saw it on your bulletin, you see it on the screen that's in front of you right now. We are talking about the church and when you're going through the pages of scripture and touching on the main themes that are found throughout the Bible, sooner or later you need to hit on this. The actual word that is used in the Greek is the word ecclesia. This is what it looks like when you give English letters to the Greek letters. Uh, but it's pronounced "ecclesia." It's found some 114 times, you know, in the New Testament, so it's, it's f- quite frequent that you find it. Unfortunately, the word is commonly used in ways that aren't the most accurate. It's used in ways that, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a 20th, 21st century, you know, sort of thing, and maybe even earlier than that, but... Uh, um the, the connotation that's attached to it is is a bit different. You know, for example, people today they talk about church as being just simply something you do on a Sunday morning. That's what church is, just what you do on a Sunday morning. Or some people refer to church as, and this is probably even more common, as a building, a building where religious activities, you know take place, neither of which are, Um, actually very close to the biblical meaning behind the word "ecclesia," And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about it to hopefully help um, us in our appreciation and understanding of what is behind this word. And right out of the gates, you know, let's clearly get this established. The church is more than a building. Now, as I said, the word is used 114 times in the new testament the very first time that it appears is found in the gospels and it's coming from the lips of our savior jesus it's found in matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18 we read this upon this rock i will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it that's the very first time that is found, of the 114 times. The verses leading up to verse 18 are, are beneficial, as is normally the case. Reading some of the context uh, kind of gives you a better understanding of, of what's actually being referenced and why it's being referenced. At the, toward the beginning of this passage, you go back about five, uh, five verses to verse 13. Jesus is asking his followers a question. He says, who do people say that I am? And they throw out a number of different responses. They say, well, some say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, perhaps John the Baptist. But then in verse 15, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter, you know, pipes up with the answer saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus, just in response to that Is saying this, upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. One of the things that we need to understand just immediately in regards to this topic is that the church exists because Jesus wanted the church to exist. The church exists because Jesus created the church, He is the one that built the church. It wasn't a result of the followers of Jesus, after having spent three-plus years with Jesus, and then he went through the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension back into heaven, and the followers of Jesus were kind of standing around looking at each other saying, Man, I'd hate for this thing to end. We really had something good going here. What can we do to, to keep this thing moving forward, this, this movement that has been started? Well, we need to get organized and we need to give it a name and, you know, and voila before you knew it. They come up with a conclusion of, of let's uh, give the organization a name, let's call it the church, and let's start establishing buildings that will represent this movement. And no, that is not the way, the church began. It did not originally form in the mind of Peter or James or John or Bartholomew or any of the apostles. It began in the mind of Jesus. Literally, the word church means called out ones. You know, if you, if you look in a Greek dictionary, you'll see that that's, that's the literal rendering of this word, called out ones. We read about the birth of the church specifically in Acts chapter 2. So this is after, you know, Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, it's 50 days after. It's the day of Pentecost, and the apostles are, are all together. They're there in Jerusalem, and it is, you know, a, a feast, a festival day in the Jewish faith. It's, it's Pentecost. And so you got people that have converged on Jerusalem from all over the known world at this particular point in time. And a lot of these people speak different kinds of languages, but they all share in common Greek. Like we had talked about a number of weeks ago, Jesus came in the fullness of time at just the right time. And one of the reasons that I suggested to you that it was just the right time, is that there was a universal language throughout the known world, basically, at that time, throughout the Roman Empire. Everybody spoke Greek. So when, when you had all these different uh, nations represented on a day like Pentecost converging together, you could talk amongst yourselves to all these different people if you used Greek because it was the universal language. However, on this particular day, something special happened. People like Peter and James and John and Andrew, simple fishermen, unschooled fishermen, they began speaking in languages that they had never studied, that they had never learned. And yet they were speaking basically the gospel message, as were all the apostles. And so you had people that came from this country and from that country, and and they naturally were grouping around the apostle that they could understand, that was speaking in their native tongue. And this was something miraculous that was happening. The gospel was being shared, and it was on that day, before you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, that you see 3,000 people are baptized into Christ. And basically what we have here is the birth of the church. But it wasn't something that the disciples had designed and scheduled and planned for. This was something that Jesus had in mind the whole time. So, is is there a way we can wrap our mind a little bit more around this idea, called out ones, and what specifically this is in reference to? Again, you just allow the Bible to shed light on the Bible. It's the best way of studying and understanding, interpreting the Bible. And so one of the passages that comes to my mind is a passage that uses the word church in its initial greeting, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and as was the case in many of the letters that are in the New Testament, in the first couple of verses, there is a greeting to who who is being written to. Most of the letters in the New Testament were being written to churches. But typically, when we're reading through or trying to understand any particular book of the New Testament, especially these letters, you know, we kind of rush through the initial greeting because we want to get to the meat of what's being said there. And sometimes when you rush through, you kind of miss stuff that was even in those opening couple of verses. And this is a case in point. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul says this, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our lord both their lord and ours so the second half of the verse basically paul is saying um, that what what who he is who he is greeting here and he's going to be talking to um, well the act, it's actually true that 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 applies to to all believers regardless of where you are all christians you know, regardless of what place, he says every place, you know, you might happen to find yourself living. So I've to draw attention to it, I've bolded and underlined two phrases. Initially, he says, to God's church, okay, and it's located at Corinth, to God's church. And then the next phrase is, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not two separate groups. That's one and the same. That first phrase equals the second phrase. In a manner of speaking, those are synonymous because they're both talking about the same group of people. It's just using different terminology to refer to them. First of all, he refers to them as being a church. And then secondly, he says he's referring to them as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified is, uh, you know, is a part of the word holy and we usually, you know, think about purity when we think about that, but an equal understanding of the word sanctified and holy is to be set apart. That, that in Christ, we are set apart from the world, which very much goes along with the, the word ecclesia, the called out ones. We've been called out of the world. We've been set apart from the world. So anyway, these two phrases are talking about the same people. So if you're going to understand the word church and, and what does that mean? called out ones, you know this is a good verse to go to because he basically breaks it down. Those who is the church, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The noun for that is Saints. They are saints. Although it may be common to hear people say, Uh, Stuff like, well, what church do you go to? Or what church do you belong to? According to verses like this verse, church isn't a place that we go. And church just simply isn't a thing that we do on Sunday morning. Church is a whole lot more than that. Church is a matter of people who have been called out from the world, who've been set apart for Christ. They've been set apart for him. You know, the, the, the simple def, um, um, description or reference word that is used for followers of Christ is the word Christian. We use that all the time. You've probably countless times in the past have said that to someone that you were sharing with the, Yeah, I'm a Christian, and, and it's a good word. It's a good biblical word. It's a word that is found in the New Testament. Now, what you may not know is how frequently it's found in the New Testament. I don't know if any of you have ever studied that before. How often is the word Christian found in the New Testament? This might be a bit of a surprise to you to hear. It's three times. Now, that doesn't take anything away from it being a good word and an appropriate word for us to use in reference to the followers of Christ, that we are Christians. But the interesting thing is, in view of looking at passages like this, You know, the noun form of this is the word saint, and he uses that, called as saints. Now, how often is that word used in the New Testament to reference the followers of Christ? It's like a hundred times. I mean, for every one time the word Christian is used, there's like 33 times the word saint or saints is used. Now, I don't know how often you go around and, you know, when people, you're talking to people and you say, oh, by the way, I'm a saint. You know, that you say that. I mean, there's kind of a connotation that has developed somewhere along the line that it's kind of a nose in the air, holier than thou, you know, sort of thing um, that's attached to the word saint. And that's unfortunate because actually it's a good Bible word to be used for followers of Christ, that we are saints. And in fact, it's kind of a favorite word that is used by the writers of the New Testament because you do see it all over the place. Now what I want to do is I want to take this a step further. Not only is the word church referring to people who've been set apart for God, but there's a special connection that these people are to have with one another. And for us to appreciate what is wrapped up in this designation of the church, this group called the church, you know, we need to appreciate what this connection looks like. I need to touch on it because it is common for people uh, to have a mentality and you, uh, I would imagine if you've witnessed, you shared your faith much, you've ran into this, you may very well have been one of these people at one particular point in time who said this to others who tried to witness to you. You maybe said something along the lines of, well, yeah, um, yes to Jesus. I, I, I like Jesus. I'm all about Jesus, but I say no to the church. That's what I'm talking about, that attitude, that in one way or another is summarized with words somewhat similar to that. Yes to Jesus, no to the church. And kind of what's being communicated there. At least to our ears, is that they don't want to have anything to do with their fellow Christians. Now, that may not be exactly what they're intending to say, because they again have an understanding that a church is a building, a church is just simply an organization, a human-made, you know, structure of religion, uh, of one form or another. That might be along the lines of what it is that they're talking about, but but uh, it's actually quite inaccurate, you know, to To think that you can approach this by saying yes to Jesus and no to the church. Because when you go into the problem, you begin to see that there's a pretty significant um, problem with that. to, To have that kind of attitude. Because what you see in the Bible is that this concept, the church, it involves family. It involves the whole concept of family. It's not just a group of religious people or people that have a certain uh, philosophy of thought or certain set values. But it's actually, according to the Bible, it's a matter of family. I don't know if you remember or not, but there was a time when Jesus's actual uh, blood family, um, his mom and his half-brothers and sisters, um, they came uh, to get him, to retrieve him, because they thought that he kind of, had a screw loose or something or other that, that, uh, he wasn't really thinking straight. And so for his own good, their intent was to go and get him and pull him away from all of the things that were dominating his time. You see, Mary and Joseph apparently had other children, you know, after Jesus had been born. And so, uh, the verse that I'm about to show you is, is, uh, referencing, uh, those, uh, half-siblings of Jesus. The passage that I'm going to take you to is Mark chapter 3. In the beginning parts of this chapter, uh, there's a lot of time demands being placed on Jesus. He's performing a number of miracles. It's kind of like people are lining up, you know, for all of these various kinds of miracles that Jesus is performing. And then, you know, partway through all of that and all the demands on his time, he takes some of his followers, and he goes up on the hillside, the mountainside. And it's at this point in time that he's going to hand select who his apostles are. You know, he's going to point out Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and, you know, all of these different guys, the twelve. That are going to be his apostles. And so that happens. And then Jesus goes back down the mountain and he's going to his home, but word spreads really quick. Jesus is back in the vicinity. And so people again converge. You know, maybe people were looking for him while he was gone or something or other. But anyway, word spread real quickly. And so what we see is this verse in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, this is after coming down from the mountain, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. Okay, so we don't know for how long uh, they had gone without a meal, but Jesus and his his disciples, now um, apostles, uh, they hadn't eaten in some time. Word gets out about this. The very next verse says, when his family heard this, They set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Okay, this is the part I referenced earlier. Jesus is doing a number of miracles. He's teaching among the people in the meantime. And then eventually his mom, his brothers, his sisters, they all show up. And we read that toward the end of the chapter. It says, then his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. Now, as we read through the biblical account, specifically Mark chapter 3, and we come to this verse, Especially if we haven't read it before or heard it talked about. You know, we immediately begin to anticipate what Jesus' response is going to be. He's going to be like, oh, you know, my family's here? Okay, guys, just put things on hold here. I'm going to go out and talk to my family. But uh, then we're a little bit surprised uh, until we develop a deeper understanding of what Jesus is all about. Because that's not what Jesus does. Instead, this is what Jesus does. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that this whole thought about this family concept being applied to the church, this did not start with the 12 apostles and over three years they kind of bonded together and so they kind of became a pack of brothers and then that's what spawned all of this family talk in reference to the church. No, it all started in the mind of Jesus. This was a value that he had. This is how he viewed people that were his followers people that were obeyers of God, that they were family. They were like moms and brothers and sisters. I wanted to show you that so that you'd be able to see and appreciate more when later, as you're reading through the New Testament, you will read some phrases, certain comments that are made, like this one in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Whenever we have the opportunity, we have to do what is good for everyone. Okay, that's a great statement, but notice the way the statement ends. It says, especially for the family of believers. So we have this family concept coming into play here. Now, it's not that we ignore needs that exist around us outside of our community of faith it's not that we ignore that by any means because this verse is saying that as we have opportunity we are to do good to everyone but basically what the apostle is saying is well that starts right here among our family of faith this starts right here with our spiritual family terminology uh, is frequent because you'll just, as you're reading through, like here's the greeting uh, that Paul makes to the church in Colossa, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, he's not saying that, oh, remember Timothy when he was first cutting teeth? And we had to change his diaper back in the days. We had plastic pants. Remember that? He was just a little bitty kid. You know. No, Timothy, Paul, Paul never changed Timothy's diapers because he's not talking about a literal blood brother here. He's talking about a spiritual brother that he has. And he goes on, To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And so we're using family terminology. We're seeing that. And as we continue to read, we'll see that more and more. As a matter of fact, it's interesting as Paul gave instructions to a young preacher named Timothy that he had sent to Ephesus, a a relatively new church uh, that still had some things that needed to be done for this church to get its feet under, under them. Uh, Paul sent Timothy there, and then he wrote him a couple of letters giving him instructions of what to look out for and what to do and what to pass on to the leaders in the church and stuff like that. Well, in the middle of all of that, look at this statement, 1 Timothy 5, the opening verses of that chapter. Paul says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. Again, he's using family terminology here. He's saying, you got somebody, Timothy, you know, young preacher Timothy, you got, you got you know, somebody that's kind of getting out of line in the church and behaving in a way that's inappropriate. Well, you don't just treat them in a harsh way. You treat him like if he was family. You approach him, you know, in an appropriate way, like you really care for the guy or the gal, you know. And so that's that's what the terminology because it's all about. It's all about this concept of the church is like a family. It actually is found, like I said, in many places in the new testament household of god that's a phrase that you're going to run across i've already commented on brothers and sisters you're going to see that terminology used frequently children of god that one's found jesus when he was teaching his his followers how to pray how did he how did he begin that our father who art in heaven kind of a corporate way of us referencing god and we reference him as our Father. That's family terminology there. In fact, isn't that the way the gospel begins? Using family terminology. John, in his account of the first chapter of the gospel that he recorded, he started this way. He said, he, talking about Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He's talking about the Jewish people there, Jesus, you know, being a Jew himself. Even his own people that had been looking forward to the Messiah coming, even they didn't recognize him or receive him. But look at this last statement. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Again, we're talking family terminology here. Brothers and sisters, that particular phrase is used like 148 different times between Acts and Revelation. If you want to include the Gospels in it, it's over 200 times that terminology is used. There's one particular verse that has always spoke volumes to me as I began to understand it, um, and I don't know if it was in Greek class or, or after I learned some of the fundamental basics of, of the Greek language that you know, I stumbled across this verse and, and it, it really spoke to me in a way that I personally needed to hear. And it drives home this whole thought of what it is that I'm trying to talk about right now. I've explained before that in the Greek... Um, Sometimes with certain English concepts, there are multiple Greek words, because at times the Greek language seems to be a specialized language in regards to giving multiple facets or angles on a particular word that we just use one word for. A case in point is the word love. You know, when we talk about love, you know, pretty much all of you in here sometime in the last week said, I love the Jayhawks, right? Right? Yeah, and uh, um, all of us in here, you know, have, have said, even if they keep trading away key players, I will always love my chiefs. So we use that word love. But then, you know, when we wake up in the morning, we may look at our spouse and say, I love you. And then we look at our pet dog and we say, oh, I love you, puppy And then on the way home, we pick up some pizza and we say, I love pizza. You know, we use the same word, you know, in all these different things. And it's like, hopefully we mean something a little different, right? Well, yeah, of course we do. And you kind of got to look at the context to to see, you know, what it is that, that we're specifically meaning when we're saying that. Well, in the Greek, they have multiple words for love. And we commonly, or at least I have in the past, commonly referred to three of those words. Agape, phileo, and eros. But but, uh, that's not even accurate if I give the impression that those are all the Greek words for love. Because they actually have more words than that for love. It's not just those three. Those are the three that we commonly reference though. The verse that I'm going to show you talks about love. But I I want just, I say this to clarify that the word agape is not found in the verse that I'm getting ready to show you. Agape love is, by and large, the word that is used for love throughout the New Testament. Agape love, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's agape love. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, that's agape love. That that is talking about there, agape love is a sacrificial type of love. It is a commitment-based kind of love, unconditional commitment. Ephesians chapter five talking about a husband and a wife, and they need to. There needs to be love there. That's agape love that's being used there, because agape love is a great foundation, foundational um, type of love, a commitment. You know, a, a, a putting a other person's interest before and beyond your own, you know, type love. So it's a good love, and I certainly do not intend to say anything that's going to take away from that, because that, by and large, is the word that is found in the New Testament. But this verse that I'm getting ready to show you does not use the word agape. Oh, another thing about agape love. You can or can't, have, I mean, you, you may or may not have emotion as a part of agape love. Agape love doesn't depend upon emotion. So you can still love people, you know, with agape love, even though you may not deep down inside feel that, but yet you know it's the right thing, so you do that. You know, that's, that's agape love. It doesn't hinge or doesn't have as its foundation feeling. But what I'm getting ready to show you, this type of love is dripping with emotion. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And it's talking about us and our connection with one another in the church. I'm going to show you two different translations. I like the way these two translations uh, do this verse holman's christian standard bible and the new king james version which is very similar actually to the king james version but uh, holman's says it like this show family affection to one another with brotherly love outdo one another in showing honor the word uh, phileo, the, it's, it's two different versions of the word phileo that's used here. And that comes from like the word Philadelphia, you know, city of brotherly love. That's, that's the word that's found here. But it's not just found once, it's found twice. And so when it says family affection, that's one of the times. And then when it says brotherly love, that's the other time. And they're slightly different versions of the word. You look at the New King James Version, it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. So we're talking about family love. We're talking about brotherly love. Think of friendship love. So so it's like friendship love, but it's also family love that, that is all being wrapped up. In the concepts here, and it's describing what is to be existing within the church, what is to be existing in our relationships with one another. One guy's expanded version of this, somewhat of a paraphrase, is he he says it like this as to your brotherly love, let there be deep friendship and family affection toward one another. So this is the concept that we find. In the Bible, and this is the family part of this, is that there is a definite emotional part. There are feelings that are wrapped up in this, and I want to make sure that you get this because based on what this verse is saying is that in the church, we are family, but we're more than family. We are friends, but we're more than friends. We are family. You know, that's, that's all the, the, the concepts being wrapped up in this. We are God's family of friends, and we should care deeply for one another. And this is a big part of the reason why you see all the one another's. As you're reading through the New Testament, there are dozens and dozens of one another's that you're going to come across. I mean, you're going to have ones that are like, greet one another, but you're also going to have ones like, accept one another, build up one another, serve one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, be kind to one another. You're going to have dozens of those that are scattered throughout the New Testament writings because we have a connection with one another. And that connection is not just a superficial thing. It definitely involves our feelings. We have deep feelings and tenderness for one another. Being a Christian, it's not just a matter of believing. Well, it certainly is a matter of believing, but it's not just a matter of believing. It's also a matter of belonging. You see, when Jesus called us into a relationship with him. He also simultaneously called us into fellowship with one another, into a connection that we share with one another. If Jesus is our Savior and God is our Father, then that makes us family. And that is an important concept that if you miss this, then you're missing an important component of what being the church is all about. We are brothers and sisters of one another. We meet together and we spend time with one another, not just because it's convenient to worship with one another, but it's also because we're looking out for one another. And we look out for one another because we care for one another. And we care for one another because we value one another. And we value one another because we are family in a very real sense you know it's it's fairly common and i'm going to say this to lead into our time of communion it's it's pretty common to have people uh, differentiate between blood family and spiritual family in fact there were some things i said early in the message where you know i i kind of you know, my statements either directly were saying that or were implying that. And and that's a fairly common thing for us to do is, is say, Oh, we're brothers and sisters of one another. I mean we're not blood family, but we're spiritual family of one another. And there is a manner of speaking in which, yeah, that's true, and that helps us to clarify our understanding. But the reality is it's actually not really correct. Because the truth of the matter is we are spiritual family. But we're also blood family. And it's during this time of communion that that's part of what we can reflect on. And I want to encourage you to do that. During this time when we take the bread and we reflect on the body of Jesus that was nailed to the cross, we take the cup and we drink it in memory of the blood of Christ that was shed there we not only are reflecting on the sacrifice that he paid in order to free us from the bondage of sin so we could have the hope of eternity in his presence forever. But this is also a time when we can be reminded of our ties with one another. Because the same blood that was shed on the cross to forgive you of your sin, that blood was shed on that cross for my sin and for the person sitting next to you and the person across the aisle and the people that were in the early service and the people that are meeting in in church gatherings throughout the country and around the world on this day, the Lord's day. In a very real sense, we are blood family. It's the blood of Christ that we share in common and so while you reflect during this time and prayerfully you know give your gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord for what he's done for you do that in recognition of the connection that you have with people around you through that same blood you know there was a time that Jesus said um, and this was like getting somewhat late on the day that uh, Jesus ended up being arrested on. So it was like the last full day of Jesus's life here on earth. In John chapter 13, Jesus made this comment. He said, they will know you're my disciples by the Christian T-shirts you wear. No, that's that's not what he said. They will know you're my disciples because if they ever climb in your car, they're going to see it dialed in to a Christian radio station. That's not what he said. They're going to know you're my disciples based on the fact you got five or six Bibles at home. No, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But that's not what he said. He said... They will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. It will be an indicator. It will be proof positive that you're a follower of Christ. It's because of that connection and that care that you have for people of similar faith as yours. And so I want you to have that thought during this time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've we have and continue to have to to study some of these main themes that are found in the Bible. And today we're talking about one that maybe at some particular point in time, perhaps even for some that are listening right now, it might be right now that that we've kind of thought little of the church and it's take it or leave it sort of thing. Uh, but Lord. The deeper we look, the more we study, the more we see. This was part of your plan to begin with. This is part of what defines your family. Father, I pray that we will really take that to heart in a way that honors you, that, that expresses our gratitude for all that you are. Might we love what you love. Might we care for what you care for? Might we have some of those very same values, Lord, that you have? And that includes our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for doing what you've done for us. And thank you for doing the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.